Hello listeners, Clemic here. Before we get started, I thought I should introduce you to my upstairs neighbor, Jane, whom you will hear from time to time on today's episode, despite my diligent efforts to remove her surprisingly bassy footfalls, which picked up even on a cardioid dynamic microphone positioned, if anything, too close to my big yap. It's almost like there was a global pandemic happening and it was 25 degrees outside the afternoon we recorded this episode so no one could go anywhere. And this lady's just walking all around like she has a right to move about freely in her own doggone home. Who does she think she is, the Queen of England? So you'll hear her occasionally while I'm speaking and I apologize for both of those sounds. I, I can't say I know well, but my very limited interaction with her has been pleasant. She's a good neighbor. So if you think you're hearing footsteps on your roof while you're listening to this episode, just know that they belong to a decent person who was wearing her dap shoes that day, I guess. Okay, here's the episode. not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my own. For official purposes, everyone has a number. Yours is number six. I am not a number. I am a person. Six of one, half a dozen of another. Glenn. Yes? This is a most serious breach of etiquette. Oh boy. What do I do now? Well, I texted you the lyrics to our new theme song... Yeah, you, and you those were, you didn't respond. I I I, I spent minutes on those, sure Glenn. Sweaty, sweaty minutes. <laughs> I wasn't sure they were for real, but if they are, they're awesome. How <laughs> was that for a save? Nice save, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's okay. I'm known for thinking on my feet like that. Nico yeah. cases people have not yet responded. Yeah, yeah. That's what we. I was reading those lyrics, and I think you know who needs to do this: a chanteuse, some chanteuse. Well, Glenn, it has been a while since I, I filed a music piece, so I don't know whether the moratorium on referring to Nico Case as a chanteuse remains in force or if it has been allowed to expire. Uh-huh. But I do know a chanteuse. You do? Yeah. I, I, yeah, I got somebody. Okay. I know a girl. All right. Tell me more, Chris. We'll come back to that shortly. Glenn. Chris. In 1966, Patrick McGowan starved the long-running TV series Danger Man, resigned at the height of that show's popularity to create a new show about a spy who resigns from government service and wakes up in a mysterious, inescapable village where each and every resident is referred to only by a number. Surreal and provocative, silly and pretentious, ahead of its time, and innately and unambiguously and lavalampedly of its time, that short-lived, long-tailed series was called The Prisoner. Nicely done. All right. Did you hear I don't, I don't Did you think hear that was entirely sincere. Did you hear I think the that was, in my voice just then? Yeah. <laughs> there was a, a note of remonstration. <laughs> Welcome to the private, personal, by-hand, punch-card-driven podcast where we take this unclassifiable and unforgettable television series and we push it like the novel by Sapphire on which the film Precious was based. There you go. We file it like the bar of a prison cell. Solid. We stamp it like a letter to Santa. Sure. We index it like the Dewey Decimal System. Nerdy. Good. We brief it like your fruits of the looms. Don't check my pluralization here. Mm, No. We debrief it like Peter Jackson adapting The Hobbit. Huh, nice. I like that one. We number it like our days remaining on this earth. Okay. Taking it, We're going to talk McGoohan's. down a peg. We're going to talk McGuffins. Our inquiry into this still perplexing document is not of a degree sorta. It is not of a degree ad hoc. It is not of a degree 
Uh, I still left, God damn it. I left the word from last week. Not of a degree, willy-nilly. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Glenn, what is yep. it? Yep, it's a, it's, a, it's a degree absolute, Chris. Hell yeah. You like Hell that? Yeah. It's my uh, Bob Newhart working, working, <laughs> working on my Bob Newhart there. It's magnificent. My parents love Newhart. I'm a little reticent about offering our, our listeners, our many, many listeners, which can now be measured in numbers because we have posted our first episode, uh, allowing that, that peek behind the curtain, that, that reveal of exactly what the lead time between recording and delivery is. But terrifyingly, there is a knowable and very finite number that, that I can, <laughs> can see of people who have heard our, our first episode. I expected nothing less. I am I am pleased with the results. <laughs> Modest were my expectations. Yeah, I mean I don't Modest I, don't I say. No, what a what a good number is. I have no idea. But uh gotten a little bit of feedback. Some tweets. I saw a tweet from Cork, Ireland. So Okay. Truly, we are international in scope and even more exciting than this. Monitoring the the official mailbox, a degree absolute at gmail.com, we have our first listener missive, Glenn. This is reader mail. This is viewer mail. This is listener mail. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's one of those things. Yep. Dear Chris and Glenn, congratulations on overcoming your years of lassitude and indolence to produce at last your long-promised, longer-discussed first episode of your Prisoner podcast, which I enjoyed very much. So there's like praise and criticism right in in one sentence. Mm Mm-hmm. I must, however, correct you, oh, here we go, on one point of fact concerning the admittedly murky origins of Rover. In the documentary Don't Knock Yourself Out, included on the Blu-ray series set of The Prisoner, released in 2009, the prototype Rover, essentially a go-kart beneath a big rubber wedding cake with a flashing blue police light on top, is indeed seen on location at Port Merion, as the shooting schedule would not allow for proper testing. Bernie Williams, who served as production manager for the first 13 of the Prisoner's 17 episodes, describes trying to drive the strange vehicle while unable to see properly through the cake-like enclosure's narrow viewport and choking on fumes therein from its noisy engine. Another crew member explains that while McGowan himself has claimed that this proto-rover sank when put to sea, in fact they never got as far as putting it in the water because it was obvious to all involved that the wheeled and unsealed vehicle would not float. Williams then confirms one of the more oft-repeated details of the legend, which is that he and McGoon were sitting outside at 10 o'clock at night with a pair of very large gin and tonics, pondering their visual effects problem when Williams gazed skyward and, observing a floating white sphere, asked McGoon, what's that? This is all explained quite clearly at minute 31 of the documentary, which Chris claims to have watched. Perhaps he merely ingested it via speed learn. Before concluding this epistle, I must add that he is extremely handsome, talented, employable, and modest, and also taller than Henry Cavill. That is a weird, weird thing to say. Um, Keep up the good work, gentlemen. I eagerly anticipate future episodes. Be listening to you, Calvin Lebowski. Do you think Calvin Lebowski's friends call him the Dude Glenn, or do you think Calvin Lebowski has, like, a different nickname, maybe? It depends on his relative size. Is he a big or a small Lebowski. I sit corrected. That's that's uh, really interesting. Um, I actually crouch corrected. I'm crouched <laughs> in, a, in a tiny little closet. Um, but uh, yeah, that's, thank you for that missive, that very kind and very detailed missive. Cal-El. That's, that's Calvin Lebowski's nickname, Glenn. Okay. All right. 
It's really sweaty. It's really, it's a really long way to go. Yep. But <laughs> I'm here for it. All right. So I may be an entirely different person than the mysterious, but certainly articulate and mm-hmm. well-informed and uh, mm-hmm. tasteful Calvin Lebowski, but I too have a correction. We also said incorrectly that the, the Johnny Rivers song, Secret Agent Man, was part of the original broadcast of Danger Man, which it wasn't. The episodes that are available to stream on Amazon Prime now are the original British incarnations of Danger Man, and they just have this kind of uh, not-too-distinct musical theme at the beginning. No lyrics, mm-hmm. no leads a life of danger, and everyone he meets in the days of stranger. I mean, so this might be the rare instance where the, the import version was superior. Can we agree, Glenn, that shows that have their own songs are better than shows that lack their own songs? Sure. I mean, just think of Batman. Even though I think 78% of those lyrics are nah, still, still counts. Completely counts. Hmm. So you're saying you like lyrics to be very descriptive, to be, you know, you don't like a lot of illusion when it comes to, to songcraft. You you want the lyrics to say very clearly what the subject of the song is, what the speakers, their emotional state is. You, you want all of that to be unambiguous in the language. Um, um, okay. Chris, when you sent me those lyrics, I th- didn't think it was a song. I thought it was a bit. I thought it was a joke. I thought you were just kind of... Oh my God! Putting some rhyming, so that's, putting some that's, rhyming that's stuff out you, there. Okay, all right. So I didn't think, think it, of my my mid career pivot into, into uh, songcraft. Uh, right? Truth comes out. I, I I believe in I, you and your gift. I mean, it's nice that you're telling me now. <laughs> but uh, I I just I didn't realize I didn't realize a title song was even in the offing. I did like you you hadn't we hadn't discussed the fact that you wanted to do a title song. So when these this kind of yeah blank verse shows up in my text uh-huh. sure it's actually the rhymes are actually well, pretty, pretty pretty solid it's not really blank verse but uh, i just didn't know what i was looking at forgive me pal uh, all right i'll consider it <laughs> in the meantime glenn um yeah. i know you love the talking heads almost as much as you love batman 66 the name of the band is talking heads chris not the talking heads but yes go on well okay as much as you love the batman 66 <laughs> if you'll permit me to Quote David Byrne at the beginning of Stop Making Sense. Hi, I got a tape I want to play. Yeah? Okay, cool. They're frequently dumb, but they're sometimes astute. They're always emphatic on a degree absolute. They're breaking the prisoner right down to the root. That whole TV show on a degree absolute. If you like love laps and From Patrick McGoon, Chris and Glenn made a podcast especially for you. It's no degree partial, it's a degree absolute. absolute. Glenn, you old space pirate. <laughs> I wish our listeners could see your face right now. This is my friend Casey. Uh-huh. She is a actor, singer, voice coach, teacher in New York. She has a company called Vital Voice Training. She was uh, in the touring company of Les Mis for, for a couple years. And I, okay. I met her when we were both instructors in the Kennedy Center American College Theater Festival. She has on occasion tried to convince me that I can sing. Despite, uh, yes. I've never heard you try. uh, Karaoke is not my jam, but uh, I I don't doubt you can. I 
I do uh, think um, I can. I kind of think I can. Glenn, the number of occasions on which I have sung karaoke is the same as the number of songs to my credit. That, mm. that would be one. That's one. The, right? the loneliest number. Mm. Also the, the song that saved you two when they were on the verge of breaking up, recording Octung Baby in Hansa Studios in Berlin 30 years ago. Is that the song you sang? Is that your karaoke number? No, Glenn. It, it wasn't. What, was... uh, what, what would your second guess be? Um, well, I mean, a lot of U2 stuff requires a big range, mm-hmm. but I would say uh, Springsteen stuff does not require as wide a range. Um, Look, I mean, if I was going to try to choose something that was within my range, there are any number of Johnny Cash songs to which I know all the words, you know, <laughs> I'm stuck in Folsom Prison. Right, sure. Or Rex Harrison. I bet they're you know, drinking the, coffee the and smoking of, big uh, cigar. The entire cast album of My Fair Lady, Rex Harrison's Speak Singing. You could wait Just it. you wait. Just you wait. And Higgins. And Eldon. <laughs> That's not how it works. Okay, so I don't know what would it be, but it's probably something you two, uh, is it in the name of love? Okay, first of all, you you have to really be able to hit some notes that even Bono hasn't been able to hit in 20 years to <laughs> sing that song, so okay. bad guess. Glenn, the song was Secret Agent Man. Oh, okay. There's a man who leads a life of danger. I mean, I got through it. Yeah, No sure. one died. No one took their own life. There is a big leap between secret and agent. That's a, that's mm-hmm. an octave if it's a day. Mm-hmm. So that yeah, yeah, yeah. So and you did it. You you scaled that. Good for you. Yeah. Fueled by, lubricated by what? Beer. Possibly sake. I think it was actually a, a, a sushi place. Story checks out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Story checks out. Well, the point is that the the little um, would be aggrandizing even to call it a demo that I sent to her was indicative enough. Was song adjacent to yeah. the point. That she and her her brother Jonathan were able to arrange it together. I was just hoping she might be willing to sing it, but she said, "You know, I'm going to get my brother to play guitar on this." Suddenly, we got a we got a real song, man. You asked for a chanteuse, who loves you, baby. Yeah, Chris. Here's my takeaway from that song. Um, we just better pack it in. Nothing we say will make any sense. We'll we'll be. <laughs> Above the the chattering of dogs compared to that. That is pristine. That is beautiful. That has uh, Agatha all along potential. I'm predicting it now. Number one with a bullet. Um, It's it's so much better than this show. Uh, You're right, of course. So rather than dwell on how much that that, uh, hurts my feelings, I will simply say that being the pious man, the devout man, the presumably church-going man that he was, I, I have to think that Magoon would give his stamp of approval to our our song, what with that, that churchy organ at the end and everything. I think he'd love it, because he's got two ears and a heart, basically. Yes. What else What else could yes. he possibly do? Right. Can you talk about the origin story of this song? Like, uh, when <laughs> I, I heard a uh, early track that she sang where she tells you, Chris, that you wrote a real song and that the chord progressions came to her very easily. Okay, so you're just letting our listeners know that we're perpetrating a bit of fraud here, but that's that's fine. Mm-hmm. It was a, like a couple minutes. Perhaps there's there's a lesson in this because if you had told me I need you to write a song and I'm going to give you 2 months to do it, I would have spent most of that time in agony reflecting on the fact that I am not a songwriter, that I have no musical education beyond a few piano lessons in the late 80s. I would have been paralyzed, paralyzed. Mm-hmm. Knowing that this was a fully low-stakes endeavor that could easily be erased, and certainly no one would note the absence of a theme song with lyrics from our podcast were it to be presented without one, mm-hmm. was was very, very liberating. It was joyous and, and over quickly 
like all the best things <laughs> in life. <laughs> so you wrote the lyrics, you sent them to her. She came back pretty quickly with, mm-hmm. with chords. With, with She could tell you what those chords are. <laughs> I sure can't. And then the next step? And, uh, she watched Arrival to, to help her get the vibe. She was not familiar with The Prisoner. I mean, she had the brief that it was part of the 60s spy diaspora. Mm-hmm at least initially. So she was thinking like kind of Bond song, kind of. And so she went to Goldfinger and went to, uh, uh, there's a, a Lulu song. What downtown? was the Lulu song? That's Petra. Not Downtown. Uh, it's it's uh, uh, somebody else. That's Petula Clark. Right. The Boat That I Row mm. is the, the Lulu okay. song from which she, she found inspiration. She actually presented me with a an arrangement of it in waltz time, which um, was just an experiment. And I, I said I thought that was a little a little too down tempo. She said that was what her brother Jonathan and she both felt too. Mm-hmm. And then they came back with what we now have, which has uh, a upbeat guitar part and a chorus of Casey's mm-hmm. at the end mm-hmm. and some Muscle Shoals organ. <laughs> but I just love it's it's sweaty. Yeah, it's great. Uh, as I say, it's got it's got some Agatha all along potential breakout hit. It's you know it's uh, not a book number. It's a <laughs> breakaway pop hit, as far as I'm concerned. No doubt about it. Yes. So thank you, thank you, thank you to Casey Aaron Clark and Jonathan Clark for arranging, performing, recording our song. Uh, we love you three thousand. Yep. And we are not worthy, according to Glenn. <laughs> but I agree. I'm here for it. I'm here for all of it. People are going to be looking up what emphatic means. <laughs> I'm thinking of this the song. Yeah, I'm thinking of your contention that uh, theme songs with lyrics are superior. That's what I'm saying. And then you run right into uh, Enterprise, Star Trek Enterprise, and boy, that whole argument collapses like a house of cards, a house of cheesy ass. Wait, this is the the Scott Bakula Star Trek prequel? Is that the one we're, we're talking about? Yes, that, and that had lyrics. It's uh, it had terrible. lyrics. Oh boy, it did. Oh shit! Well, I never knew that. It was awful. I mean, it's weird that I never saw it anyway because I loved Quantum Leap, so I am a Bacula fan. It finds its legs eventually, but oof, it takes a long time. Wow! None of the other stars Trek have lyrics. No, for a very good reason. Uh, Firefly had lyrics, and they were kind of cheesy. Uh, you can't take the sky from me. Which okay. Well, I think the first time I, the first of the many times I've written variations on that piece, I think it was when the Avengers came out with, of course, Joss Whedon. Like who, who better? The guy who did Doctor Horrible. Why couldn't we have a title song explaining the power and just general role within the group of each Avenger in the manner of does whatever a spider can? Mm-hmm. I think that would be great. Yeah, you'd get to Scarlet Witch and you'd be kind of like, <laughs> I think she did chaos magic. I think. Seems to be able to do anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then this this guy shoots arrows. Right, this guy shoots arrows. That'd be fun. We, we'd end with him. Potato nose dude shoots arrows. Yep. Is, is my thing. Yeah, my, you know, I, I haven't takeaway. watched the WandaVision finale yet, but I gather it was more satisfying than the Fallout, the prisoner finale. Or at least less uh, obtuse. Although, who knows? I mean, will they be talking about the WandaVision finale in 53 years? Maybe. That's a good point. Maybe that's not. a very good point. Yes. They, they certainly won't, and it involves uh, fewer Beatles. So, <laughs> well, that's a mark against it in my <laughs> book. Number, please. What exchange is this? Number, please. I want to make a call to. Local calls only. What is your number, sir? I haven't got a number. No number, no call. 
Greetings, Glenn and Chris. Uh, this is Patrick from the Original Cast podcast, uh, and I am loving uh, your show, and I'm enjoying watching along with The Prisoner as I listen, which I, I've never seen The Prisoner before now, so this is exciting for me. But I was struck by two things after watching uh, the first episode that I felt I must share with you. The first uh, is as a, a writer and um yeah, student of film and, and, and all that for, for many, many years. I was struck by the total lack of any effort whatsoever to make Patrick McGowan likable. You know, it's always the, the thing you tell you got a hero, he's got to have the save the cat moment at the beginning, so you're on his side and you like him, and then you'll want to follow him on this journey. The experience I had watching Arrival was that I hate this man. I hate, I don't understand why he's what he's doing i don't understand what his motivation is he's very rude to everyone um and i understand he's in an extreme circumstance but the first thing i see him doing is driving an awesome car and then yelling at somebody i don't even know who it is so that fascinates me that there's no effort whatsoever to make patrick mcgoon likable you either like him or you don't or maybe you're not supposed to i'm not entirely sure but the other thing that struck me this was just a little tick of mine watching arrival was that there's a a score thing that happens in arrival uh, early, it's like four minutes in, right after he goes to the cafe and then looks around for the telephone. There's a little flute scoring, which I will insert here so that you can hear exactly what I'm talking about. All I could think of while listening to that piece of scoring during the episode was that it sounds remarkably like a section of underscoring from uh, It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, when Snoopy imagines he's the World War One flying ace, uh, imagining he's down behind enemy lines, making his way across the French countryside. I found it very distracting. So both of these things led to a uh, an interesting arrival watching experience for me, but I enjoyed watching it, and I'm, I'm up through the chimes of Big Ben, and I'm excited to keep going through the series with you guys. So thank you so much for doing this. Talk to you soon. I'll take my answer off air. What do you think of that, Glenn? Well, I got, uh, I got something to say about part one. I don't have anything to say about part two. On the surface level, right, this... This series exists uh, as just the straightforward story of an ex-spy who is trapped in a village. But that's not this series. The series is an allegory. It is an extended allegory about self versus uh, society, individualism versus uh, being asked to conform, forced to conform. So in as much as the prisoner exists as a symbol, which we are kind of tipped off that he does just from the name of McGowan's production company, Everyman Limited, which is, of course is a, is a morality play. Uh, so, and in many ways, the series acts as a morality play. So things like likability kind of fall away when your main character is has the weight of representing, quote, the, capital T, individual, capital I. And I think that's probably what we're working with there. Um, as far as second, part two... I have no idea, man. Like, I think the the Great Pumpkin was aired in the states in nineteen what sixty sixty six. Yeah, 66. I checked. It's not session musicians. It's the Vince Guaraldi Sextet who did the music for the Great Pumpkin. So maybe you just had some Peanuts fans in the maybe <laughs> at ITC yeah. at ITV. I don't know. I, I, what do you think? 
think it's an excellent catch by by Patrick, but I yeah. I have no idea. I mean, it certainly doesn't um, seem any weirder than having Pop Goes the Weasel uh, prominently mm-hmm. featured both in in Arrival and in Checkmate, mm-hmm. which we'll be discussing a few weeks from now. But what's your theory about the uh, luckability? Because he's certainly true. It's not a thing. Yeah, you know, one thing we, we talked about uh, that, that we have not discussed on air at all, but I mean, when we were, were talking about the, the idea of doing this show, we discussed The Prisoner as sort of an antecedent to a lot of prestige TV that would come much later. And in a lot of the discussion around prestige TV was about antiheroes. It was about Tony Soprano, Walter White. Don Draper is a, a likable character, maybe, but not an admirable character. Certainly his his sins, his flaws, his lies, that's a big part of what made him an intriguing character to follow. I think in this case, it's more of a, there's an element of, of power fantasy, especially this era of television. There are so many nice guy protagonists and this guy isn't. Certainly everyone has moments where they'd like to be able to just tell someone off. Mm-hmm. I think David Chase said, he, as the Sopranos went on, he had to keep thinking of awful things for Tony Soprano to do because the audience just liked him too much. Mm-hmm. You know, he felt like a lot of viewers were just not getting the message that Tony is not someone to be admired or emulated. It was kind of that, you know, where Trump said he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and his supporters wouldn't abandon him. Chase said that there was almost nothing he could have Tony Soprano do. And so I, I think... There's there's maybe an, an element of uh, of that. I mean, McGowan certainly presents a less flattering portrait of himself in The Prisoner than he does in, in Danger Man, mm-hmm. where just in the course of his work as a spy, as a guy who has to talk his way into places, we do get to see him being charming and likable. I mean, it's always to sort of a deceitful end, but mm-hmm. but we see that he's capable of it. There are many scenarios in The Prisoner where his plan probably would have been more successful had he been willing to try to charm people a little bit rather than just be a, a bully. I'm curious about that because I don't really remember Secret Agent slash Danger Man that well. And I was wondering if he was more personable, less of a dick to people in scenes when he wasn't you know, fully driven on a mission. Because you've got to say one thing about... The Sopranos is you are dealing with the fact centrally that James Gandolfini is an incredibly charismatic, warm actor who radiates um, empathy. Uh, that I would I would essay is not a looming issue with Patrick McGowan. The guy's not not a big old teddy bear. You just want to kind of go aw. And with uh, Walter White. They start the character off from a place of incredible empathy. You can't help but feel right. for him. The guy's got cancer. His, his students make fun of him at the car wash. He is front-loaded with goodwill. Yeah, like, and, he's and like Willie Loman at the beginning of that series. Absolutely, and they, and they make him transform. Now, what they did not foresee was that there is a subset of, of the fan base for that show who wanted Walter White to become... Uh, the ruthless badass he did, and saw any shreds of humanity or, you know, his wife as as something holding him back, and they hated anything that uh, that that because they again it, for them it was wish fulfillment. It was, what if I was a sociopath? Um, I think the thing that is the organizing principle for McGowan's interpretation of this character in the village is he's a caged animal and he's lashing out and he wants to escape. So things like politesse kind of fall uh, beneath the surface. Yeah. It is amazing that we uh, are invested in him to the extent we are, but it's also by virtue of his situation. He is trapped, 
and everybody can empathize with wanting to have freedom, especially when it's working on this allegorical level where he is representing humanity and, and uh, our, our need to be free. I think that's kind of what this, the series is writing on. I do kind of wonder who, in, in McGowan's mind anyway, the target audience for this show was circa... 1967 like was Mm -hmm. it for kids was it for adults certainly when i was a kid i did want to see some manifestation of invulnerability in Mm -hmm. my heroes that was reassuring that was aspirational you know Mm -hmm. now i find it boring and vain and self-aggrandizing and whatever but back then like i I didn't got no time for vulnerability you know i didn't Mm -hmm. i didn't want to see that i wasn't comfortable with that and not not until many years later, not until I became an adult, that I think that whatever is the most dramatic, whatever puts the most conflict into the story is the presentation of the character that I want. I did not want anyone to have any inner conflict or, or self-doubt or anything as a impressionable young viewer, as I was when I first encountered this series. And I want to clarify that the wish fulfillment part of that, it's not so much a desire to be a jerk to people the way number six is, but it's to be freed from this constant need to be liked, uh, mm-hmm. from which he clearly does not suffer. You know, that is an attractive aspect in a fictional character. Um, and, and his lack of fear, as with so many action-adventure heroes, the fact that he processes the trauma of this extraordinary situation as rage, as anger, and a productive anger that allows him to contrive and execute all these various escape schemes that never work, but he keeps on swinging. I mean, that makes him an interesting dramatic protagonist um not someone i would want to meet or spend time with in real right. life i mean i think one of the many things that bonds us you and i chris is our love of dc characters as when we were kids because they you know this is a broad brush they did not their their organizing principle they didn't lead with their inner conflict they didn't lead with uh thoughts of self-doubt um, because that's what kids, I would argue, that's what kids want. They, we want stability and security right. and, uh, um, and comic book characters for very young kids are <laughs> yeah. just wish fulfillment. And then as your adolescence, as you enter adolescence, which is when I stopped reading comics, is, is when you want to, um, you, you want to see your, yourself reflected. And that means, Aunt May's dying again. Should I give up the costume? <laughs> yeah. I'm not worthy. I'm an outcast. I have no journalistic ethics, so I'm going to sell some photos of me perpetrating vigilantism, and I'm going to sell them to J. Jonas Jameson so I can pay the rent this month. Yeah, but, I mean, he, he and Clark Kent have that in common. That's, so I mean, Wait, that's, did, did that's Clark a, Kent cover Superman? Was it Lois covered he really Superman? Did. He? Okay. he really did. He really did. And sometimes Clark scooped Lois uh, with Superman stories because, of course, he had kind of the inside track. Well, that was just to teach her a lesson, Glenn. Mm, that's right. <laughs> to throw her over his lap and spank her, as happened entirely too often in, in that comic. Agreed. By the way, Superman, The Unauthorized Biography by Glenn Weldon, the unauthor of The Unauthorized Biography, still available. Thank you for that contribution, Patrick. Uh, and everybody, check out the original cast, Patrick's fine, fine podcast, wherein musical theater people, artists, playwrights, composers, and when he really gets to scrape in the barrel, sometimes a critic... Mm-hmm. Or two. Appears to talk about favorite original cast albums. Thank you, Patrick. Election time in the village. The time when every man and woman is able to vote for a leader. A vote that is free for all. 
It looks like a unanimous majority. Very bad for morale. Some of these good people don't seem to appreciate the value of free elections. Everyone votes for a dictator. Thank you, my dear fellow. You are just the sort of candidate we need. What is the price of his freedom and his chance to control the village? It's free for all to see in the next exciting episode of The Prisoner. We are discussing free for all. Um, you can tell us about the, the production order on this one, but it was the fourth one aired, and by all accounts, one of McGowan's core seven. Also yeah. written and directed by Patty McGee, his own self. Under the name Patty Fitz, under the pseudonym right. Patty Fitz, yeah. Uh, we'll talk about it because it becomes very evident as soon as this thing starts, that this was supposed to air incredibly early, like second or third possibly but uh we'll talk about that but yeah it did air, air fourth and uh it, certain things in it don't make sense if you watch yeah. it fourth i really hate it when people are revisiting something particularly a a genre document from a prior era and they praise it for its prescience because mm-hmm. um, that just seems like a lame it assumes that the purpose of science fiction is to try to predict the future which i don't think it is right but I don't think we can get away from it in this case. Watching this episode just a couple months after the 2020 election, it, it's hard not to feel like Magoon's observations on tribalism, on the fragility of, of democracies, and on the sort of speciousness on, of relying on the mob to make the correct decision to take responsibility for educating themselves, for appreciating the power that they wield when they cast a vote. It's, it's tough not to see that as very resonant now. Sure, sure. Um, I think you can get too far with that. This isn't actually one of my favorite episodes. I understand why it's in the core seven or whatever, and I understand why he liked it as much as he did, as he often said he did. The simplicity of the symbolism, individual versus society, individual good, society bad. Like, that is the core symbol, the core uh, allusion of the episode, and it always seemed a little simplistic to me and tends to get overpraised. What I like about this episode, watching it now, is that I see there is a bit more nuance injected into that uh, schematic. I want to make sure I'm, I'm not misrepresenting your overall feeling about the show. I think you said when we talked about the Chimes of Big Ben that you prefer a non-allegorical reading. You you prefer to take it at face value to not assume that um, we're we're seeing purely the interior of number 6's mind that that this is all occurring in some external reality. Is that fair to say? Um I would say that I like I think it's a great exercise to take it at face value and not spend lots of time hunting down the allegory because you don't have to hunt it down. It's right there in your face. And in fact, it's so in your face that toward the end of the series, the series abandons its uh, adherence to reality and kind of cheats in the direction of the allegory so much that certain basic story points don't make sense. It's the tyranny of the allegory that I object to. Okay. Yeah, and you, you and I have, have had essentially this conflict over other pieces of uh, fiction sure. before. So, all right, I understand that a, a bit better now. Let's, let's just dive into this one. The episode certainly doesn't waste any time. I don't know how it is that uh, Magoon seems to have a 
sharper pen than, than some of the other writers. But there sure. are some really pithy bits of repartee in this episode that stand out because we don't get a lot of that rat-a-tat kind of bubbly dialogue in this series generally. But you see that in the scene where we're introduced to this episode's number two. Good morning, good morning. Any complaints? Yes. I'd like to mind my own business. So do we. Do you fancy a chat? The mountain can come to Muhammad. Muhammad? Everest, I presume. I've never had a head for heights. That's number one. At the summit. Play it according to Hoyle. All cards on the table. You may rely on that. Mm. Um, whose move? Yours only. Confide, and we concede. This is good stuff. It's solid stuff. It's solid stuff. And we did glimpse this number two, who's played by Eric Portman, in the opening Q&A. Uh, but it's not Eric Portman's voice. It is the default villainous village bad guy voice uh, that we'll see in many other episodes where they're trying to give us a mislead on who number two is. Yeah. So in those in those episodes, we don't see who's in the chair at all. Here we get a glimpse, but it's not while he's speaking. And this intro is, what am I? In the village. It's very Vincent Price. It's very mustache yeah. twirly. It's all really, really over the top. And when we first glimpse Six in this episode, he is still agitated. He is still refusing to bend. Uh, he is, uh, he refuses to refer to himself as number six when the operator calls, even though if you watch this in the order it aired, he just did that last episode with, uh, uh. with his minder, with uh, the laboratory person. So uh, he, he's surprised by the fact that he can speak on the phone and see uh, number two on the television screen, yeah. which he shouldn't be. Um, and he also, most crucially, he believes number two when number two says that they elect a new number two every 12 months. Because if he's been in the village for as long as he's supposed to be, if, if he watched it in the airing order, he's seen four number twos come and go in a matter of weeks. Yeah. Um, I love that that bit where number two shows up after he's spoken to him on the video phone. Because, you know, when he spoke to him on the video phone, we saw the chair, the round chair in the background. Mm. So I like to think of him coming, or carrying a little placard with him as he's <laughs> waiting outside. And just yeah. kind of stands in front of it and then walks right in. This is yeah. one of the more collegial uh, number twos we get. He's very disarming. He's kind of amiable. He's respectful of number six. Uh, downright chummy in, in yeah. some cases. Mm -hmm. uh, we meet uh, number 58, um, played by the great Rachel Herbert, who is still kicking around, Chris. She's 86 years young. Oh, boy. Uh, is she available? Is, uh... <laughs> I like her very much. Yes, you've made that clear, but uh, perhaps you should make it clear to the to the listeners how much you like her. All right. Well, when you Google her, uh, when you Google image search her, Glenn, not that that's where I would start, but um, oh. overwhelmingly, the, the preponderance results is from this episode. I noticed so that, yeah. I, I know she had some other credits, but this seems to be what lingers in the minds of, of many about her career. I think she's great. I think she gives a very slapsticky kind of comic performance for most of this episode, speaking some language that I have tried to identify. Me too. Um, unsuccessfully. It it has the. Uh, it it could be sort of pigeon Baltic, you know. It's a sort of yeah. It's very Eastern European. Credit to whomever subtitled the Blu-rays, because I did pick out some of her phrases and try and you know which are subtitled phonetically. The translation apps seem to think it's Turkish oh, most of the time, but it's, but it's clearly not. I mean, I think the only phrase that we 
it, it's pretty clearly indicated that La, La Isit Zona is be seeing you mm-hmm. because it's accompanied by the, the hand gesture and they repeat it a lot and number two says it to her. So she's doing that for, for most of the episode. And then when she has to suddenly become cold and intimidating, she, she turns on a dime. This is, <laughs> this is becoming a theme in this series. Yeah. Women, so warm, so approachable, <laughs> so vulnerable, until they reveal their true nature, their true duplicitous nature. But I, I really like her. I, I think she's great in this episode. Yeah, she's great, especially in her uh, in the latter part of the episode, in the, after the turn. That accent is so home counties. It's so pure privilege. It's so wealth. Give my regards to the homeland. I was fascinated by something that I didn't notice any other time I've seen this episode, where number two says she may be a mere number 58, but yada, yada, yada. Um, I've always wondered if the numbers in the village meant anything, and now this is about as clear uh, an indication that they do, that the higher your number, the more important you are, the more um, uh, privileged Mm. information you had access to. We will see this reinforced when we meet the members of the press in this episode who uh, are so are held in so little regard by both the village and probably McGowan that they they rank all the way down in the triple digits. So Well, I the think... reporter is 113 and the photographer is 113B, which is sort of an interesting symbiotic split. Yeah, I just figured they were a gay couple. That's that's what I I figured uh, that's what I figured. All right, but... wait. So who's the A and who's the B? Well, see, that's 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 a personal question and you're not supposed to ask that. I know, and and number six wouldn't dare. No, you I have a fortunate to hang with us, a recent recruit, whose outlook is particularly militant and individualistic. The one and only number six. I am not a number. I am a person. <laughs> In some place, at some time, all of you have positions of a secret nature and had knowledge that was invaluable to an enemy. Like me, you are here to have that knowledge protected or extracted. That's the stuff to give them. Unlike me, many of you have accepted the situation of your imprisonment and will die here like rotten cabbages. Keep going, beloved. Again, not not to overstate the elements of uh, prescience in this episode, but the thing about number six jumping into the into the race throwing his hat in the ring because why not because fuck it because i'm stuck in this place anyway and this place sucks and maybe i can wake up a few of these sheep and help them to realize that it sucks and i'm going to separate the the warders from the minders or wait do those two words mean the same thing the... um yes they do okay well <laughs> who are the prisoners and who are the warders thank you that's a tea party Right. Yeah. That's uh, <laughs> that's that's pretty much uh, Lauren Bobert. That's uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. That's uh, an increasing number of candidates in, in modern times. I don't believe in any of this. Right. And this whole system is a sham. But but fuck it. I'm going to participate anyway, because if I'm not here, you you might get one of those book learning homework doing types <laughs> who who actually tries to do their job. Yeah, he campaigns on a platform of uh more leisure time, all, more all work, um, less work, more play. Um, <laughs> he promises winter, spring, summer, and fall. We'll get, we'll get you there. Uh, so it's, it is very clearly a make the village great again platform. And, yep. Yep. and uh, while he and, and clamping opponent, down on security, while his opponent uh, 
warns people of avoiding the easy answer and uh, to think more critically and uh, beware of him in, and also kind of preaches a, an implicit austerity program. All right. You might be giving number two a little credit there on the campaign trail. When he warns against new faces whose enthusiasm is undeniable, I, I got a real Jeb Bush vibe off sure. of him. Sure, that's that's a good point. And Please uh, clap. <laughs> yeah. And a Romney. There's a little Romney in him, too. Right. Uh, but he introduces number six's uh, campaign by saying he, he is taking up an approach of militant individualism, which <laughs> he nailed it. That's pretty much it's, he got his number, as it were. Yeah. Um, I think, watching it now, this episode answered a question for me that I've always had, which is why don't they just, like, they can brainwash him. Why don't they just, you know, brainwash him and make him tell him why yeah. he resigned? There is something that happens here. Um, he eventually is completely brainwashed into espousing empty promises, but he starts voluntarily. He enters this campaign of his own free will, which I think is probably can be explained on a, we have to keep him safe. We can make him do something we want him to do, but there has to be a glimmer of, of ind- like free will in it. We can't just coerce him to tell us why he resigned without damaging him. We must uh, sway him over to our side, even temporarily. I think that that notion of where he crosses over, which I never really understood before because it, it's like, wait, they brainwashed him, but he was already doing it, and now he's acting drunk even though he's not drinking any alcohol. Yeah. All that stuff made a bit more linear sense to me this time through. Well, my unscientific sampling of Danger Man episodes indicates mm-hmm. that Patrick McGowan likes to play drunk. Um, I don't know if that's just his comment on uh, those those fornicating libertines who don't have any self-discipline. I've seen a single-digit number of Danger Man episodes, and in more than one of them, he sneaks into some place by, by pretending to be a, a filthy drunk. Oh, okay. Interesting. Uh, so how many times, Chris, do you think the village has run this scam on someone? It is an elaborate scam. It involves literally everybody in the village. And, and I was going to say, it does seem to me that the population of the village has increased in this episode. That's and true. Not everyone is over the age of 65 now. Yeah, well, that's, that's true. There is something that happens where their enthusiasm is, you know, it's, it's written for them out on, on placards. Yes, um, the, the butler is flashing at them, for distinguishing when they should chant the word progress and when they should just say rah, rah, rah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's spelled with an H, by the way. It is indeed spelled with an H. He enters the campaign. Number 58 is waiting for him to drive him around in a mini-moke. He doesn't like it. He also doesn't like the fact that she doesn't even speak English, which is not a good look. Number six. Yeah, there's an exchange. And again, I'm I'm looking for the, the sexy wherever I can find it in, in the show in, in tiny little dribs and drabs. But number two tells him that number fifty or tells number six that number fifty-eight is assigned to him to during for the duration of the campaign as his driver and personal assistant and whatever else you require within reason. To which number six replies, "Next." <laughs> he is not interested in any ancillary services from number fifty-eight. Yeah, and we get a a really hard look at number six's decor here because we see the television screen so many times, and above mm-hmm. the television screen are two janky-ass ceramic lions and a metal biplane, (laughs) and next to the television screen is a pewter mug. And, like, I do not think of number six and think tchotchkes, you know, but there's so much clutter in that apartment. There's so much crap. (laughs) And it's all 
slightly deformed. Anyway. And it's not like they have to conceal their surveillance devices. Right. Right. They're not relying on him to think that he is unobserved. So, yeah. So why? We get the uh, umpa music of joviality as we are introduced <laughs> to two reporters from the local newspaper, the Tally Ho. Uh, again, this is clearly his first week. He is told that there is a local newspaper and that it is called the Tally Ho. Now, the voice of the reporter is 80 Yard, but it's also a very familiar voice, and I'm wondering if it's that actor or who wh- who they w- go back to and use a lot. Robert Rietti? Yeah, or if it's just... The one, the one who wants to do a deal? Exactly. I, I don't know. I don't know either. I don't know. How are you going to handle your campaign? No comment. Intends to fight for freedom at all Smiles. costs. How about your internal policy? No comment. We'll tighten up on village security. Smile! How about your external policy? No comment. Our exports will operate in every corner of the globe. How do you feel about life and death? Mind your own business. No comment. We get a real takedown of the fourth estate here as they record his answers, which is no comment. They make up his answers for him. It's a real... Rita Skeeter takedown on the part of Patrick McGowan. Um, right. You know, learned... And then when, when one of them rips a, a, a copy of the instantly printed tally-ho off of their little hand-cranky press and, and hands it to number six, both the headline and the caption beneath the one photograph of him <laughs> ever taken says, number six speaks his mind. Yeah, it does. Which, I, I mean, I don't know that I'm, I'm so invested in a, a critique of the fourth estate from anyone who thinks that this is what headline writing and caption writing consists of <laughs> or that these are the same task. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, and of course, you know, they probably have like number 17 speaks her mind, number 28. <laughs> like they all have it just queued up because they yeah. must have run this scam so many times. Yeah. We also hear that one of the promises that the newspaper man makes him make is that our exports will reach every corner of the globe which made mm. me think, what, what, is, what is the cottage industry? Ha-ha, cottage industry of, yeah. like, is it parasols and top hats? Is that what they're <laughs> pumping out into the world? And where are all the penny-farthing bicycles? Like, I, I sort of thought we would see some of them in the show proper, not just an illustration of one in the, the closing credits. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, they're on the badges. But uh, are they on the badges? They're on the badges, they're and on. Uh, they're on insignia ra- around the around yeah. the village there is a penny farthing bicycle often in number two's office and mm. there was one that was tooling around um yeah. not being ridden but being kind of those things are terrible. hard to ride that would be man. terrifying yes absolutely. <laughs> i think i would rather rather ride a unicycle um okay so he is getting uh, more and more angry uh, as he sees that this is a scam he, he he knows exactly what's going on he can't not so uh he eventually makes it to the town hall to witness the dissolution of the outgoing council, there's a moment when he th- he is so uh, put out that he looks like he's going to leave, and then Rober comes and blocks his path, uh, so he yeah. must go in. And then he, we go into the um, council chamber. It's uh, uh, prepare yourself. It's circular, mm-hmm. <laughs> circular interior design here. Um, podiums arranged in a semicircle. Uh, there's a podium in the center for number six, a raised podium for number two, and then an even higher empty throne with a blinking blue eye uh, that we are led to believe is, is number one. Wait, is that? I thought that was, I thought that blue eye was part of number two's chair. Am I wrong? If you go back and look, it's an empty throne. Okay. Yes, it's just, it's just so it's actually, it's just the perspective the camera is looking up at yep. number two, and then there's another chair behind him? Yep. 
All right, I missed that. That's okay. I missed it every viewing of this episode beforehand. When number two is chastising number six for his serious breach of etiquette, the blue eye is flashing. Yeah. The blue eye is angry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, but the next time we see a version of number... See, I, I always associate number one with the color red, but not blue. But uh, it's blue here, and there's a purple yeah. light um, that... that can hypnotize him or something. There is some back and forth here between number two and number six about adhering to the rules of polite society and political process. Um, which, which, which again, yeah, that's, uh, that's uh, resonates. And uh, you know, resonates. we have recently learned that a, a lot of the the things that bound the behavior of, of presidents were not laws. They were not Carlos. They were not cliffs. They were norms. They um, were. That- uh, were they Woody's, Glenn? They were not Woody's. <laughs> they were they were coaches if they were a damn thing. Yeah. Um, they weren't Rebecca's. Um, we've learned over the past four years that the democracy turns out to be a collective hunch, and uh, and it's incredibly fragile. Yeah. And so he starts to uh, rotate. That podium starts to rotate, and he starts questioning the council members who are completely impassive. Brainwashed imbeciles. Can you laugh? Can you cry? Can you think? Is this, is this what they did to you? Is this how they tried to break you? In your heads must still be the remnant of a brain. In your hearts must still be the desire to be a human being again. This is the most serious speech of etiquette. And then number six makes an impassioned speech, um, which number two decides is a breach of political etiquette and that he must undergo the test. Um... And this is where the imagery in the series starts to go, at least in this episode, starts to go a little feathery at the edges, leaning yeah. harder into the surreal. Uh, and number six is impaired in some way by this bluish-purple light that strikes him. It feels like, to me, what they've done is they've kind of removed his higher brain functioning, his uh, his filters, and he becomes right. more, not feral, but more animalistic, more, more simplistic. Uh, his higher brain functions seem to have short-circuited. Now, all of the the people who had knowledge of the prior design for Rover mentioned that it had a bluish-purplish light that had a hypnotic effect on its victims. So maybe they took that and ported it over to, you know, this this chute that number six is sent down where where he lands in number 26's office. Right. After a red tunnel with some subway straps uh, that he kind of propels himself along. Drunkenly, as as though he's in a, a Danger Man episode. Exactly. He is led to the office of number 26, played by George Benson. Um, He is listed in the credits as labor exchange manager, which we would call an employment office. Hmm. Um, And uh, the first thing he does, because apparently this is the first thing you do when you meet number six, is you question him about his tea choices, uh, which, of course, were all in his file. And we learn that, according to this... uh, Apparatchik uh, in in the village that uh, not taking sugar reflects discipline and fear uh-huh. of death, um, <laughs> which I mean, sure. Uh, there's a yeah. back and forth with number twenty six, in which we learn that this interrogation technique is adopted from the civil service. One of the series' few joke jokes, uh, but it works. Did it work for you? I I mean, I recognized it as having the form of a joke. But I did not get it. The tempo at which, though, oh, you know, very good technique. Where did you get it? Oh, from the civil service. He adapted immediately. Clearly a joke. Just from the, like, even if you didn't understand the meaning of those words, I think the 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 rhythm is. 
the rhythm yep. and the fact right. that yeah. the guy who's who provides the punchline disappears from screen because he's on the seesaw, and as he says it, he disappears from screen. That is clearly right. that is underlining the joke. It is still tossed away. Basically, what it's saying is, you know, this is this is when this series is working on a very allegorical level. It gets a little simplistic. It says, like, take that bureaucracy, which you know, it's de- bureaucracy is dehumanizing uh, service okay. pencil pushers. Yeah, it's all that. That's a just a lame joke. It's a low, low-hanging joke. The, the joke about the press and the the mini Moog interview is too, but the, I think that one's better. Yeah, it's, it's just executed better. I don't know. I mean, I think the fact that it is tossed away and the, and the stuff in the mini Moog is a little bit more heavy-handed. I I, I prefer this one. Uh, well, it is it is quicker. It is quicker, right? So number twenty-six is warned to keep it light, not to damage the tissue, which is. Could be the alternate title of this episode. Don't damage the tissue. Damaging the tissue. Damaging the tissue. There is a really cool-looking uh, interrogation scene here involving geometric shapes, because sure. In this scene, we get made explicit what has been, what the audience already knows, which is Six is only running for office so he can take over an orchestrated mass breakout. He is made to confess that. Um, yeah. Implicitly. Even though he's told that everything you think here is in the strictest confidence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, there is an interesting exchange where the very simple... As I said before, the symbolic idea of the series gets teased out a bit, allowed to get a little bit of nuance, where number 26 makes six confront the fact that he, if, if he is committed to this kind of militant individualism, he is only thinking of himself and not the people he could hurt, uh, and, and, and that people he's putting in danger. Now, that may be a disingenuous thing on number 26's part to try to, you know, beat the individualism out of six, but it's true. It's a real thing. Yeah. Um, and the end result of this procedure is that number six is completely, totally bought in, totally brainwashed. He let, you know, he opened the door himself, but they pushed him through it. Yeah. When he when he stands from the chair after he's been been brainwashed, crisp uh, creases in his trousers, which <laughs> I, I, I thought was a nice touch. Yep. I, like newly, newly pressed pants on him somehow. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't notice that. Uh, so he's totally bought in. He's talking to the press now. He's giving these empty anodyne speeches back at his apartment. He's lecturing number 58 about obeying the rules. Um, and he is, in all his uh, in all his talking that he's doing now, he has that affected speech pattern that Six adopts when he is performing something. Which you and I would <laughs> refer to as behaving like a human being, <laughs> being pleasant, <laughs> true. being approachable. It uh, sits uneasily on it him. It does. It does. It, it, uh, the words do not come easily from his mouth. They do not trippingly on the tongue. Um, but six is going to six, which means he's got to be a dick to a woman <laughs> at some point. And he screams <laughs> at number 58, trying to get her to the salute. Uh, she does in her language. And then he makes a break for it because apparently the conditioning is failing. Conditioning is failing, and this uh, episode is uh, for about 75 seconds turning into a Miami Vice. So there's some bullshit with a, a speedboat chase. Yeah, a speedboat, Chris, <laughs> that the village has, apparently. Knew about, knew about, the, knew about the helicopter. Didn't speedboat know that they pursued have... by, by helicopter. I'm, I'm going to give this, this whole dumb sequence a pass, uh, simply because when one of the, the two goons who are repairing the speedboat? Or I, they have jumpsuits. I don't know so who, who are there. And I, and, I, and I think it's the same two henchmen who will uh, rise from, from the floor mm-hmm. later on to, to drag number six out of the control room. When six punches one of them and he falls backwards into the water, 
He screams like he is falling into the Sarlacc pit <laughs> or a volcano. I mean, the water's probably cold. It's, yeah. it's whales. But it seemed out of proportion with the threat he faced in that moment. <laughs> well, the other guy screams when number six reaches from his... Uh, number six is kind of riding along the side of the boat at one point, mm. and he reaches up to grab the other henchman, and he grabs him in the junk and, <laughs> and totally throws him over the side uh, and tosses him into the drink. Um, we get uh, Rover dispatched. Um, and, and the Roverettes. And the Roverettes. We do see the, the secondary tertiary Rovers uh, briefly. And as he's spouting needs His of the stump speech. <laughs> yeah, and this is some, some interesting vocal syncopation. Is that the word by, mm-hmm. by Magoon here? Because he's he still has his mechanical cadences, but all the fury is drained from it. Yep. So, very good technique. Uh-huh. That's absolutely true. He's then in the hospital, and we get a montage of pretty much everything we just saw happen in the damn episode. Then he's back at home, and the light above his head uh, lowers to brainwash him. We'll see this happen mm-hmm. several times in the series. Yeah. And then he is on the stone boat making a, a speech with ridiculous promises. You can enjoy yourselves, and you will. You can partake of the most hazardous sports, hazardous and you sports will. Hazardous sports, <laughs> if you give up information, right. Like, wh- that's, uh, like that does not sound good to me. This certainly seems what the, what the Admiral was, uh, was after. Yeah, that's right. I don't know. He probably does miss his hazardous sports. I miss my hazardous sports, Glenn. Yeah, I don't, I don't miss hazardous sports at all. Um, I, I hate hazardous sports because they're hazardous. Uh, yeah. I also think this is number six kind of rebelling against the nanny state, which, again, not a good look. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You mentioned the, the visual elements, the, the blue-violet light and the uh-huh. red hallway, and I think the, the sound design gets a, a jump up here, too, with the, the brainwashing. I love that. that yeah. Maybe it's supposed to indicate when he's under the influence and when its influence is waning. I, I didn't tie it that closely to what was happening on screen. But certainly... In the earlier campaigning scenes, when number six declares his candidacy and he's addressing the crowd through the megaphone and then the marching band gets going, stuff like there, there is a, I don't know, it's like a backmasking tape effect or something, but there is a distorted effect on the sounds of, of the crowd that does mm-hmm. give it sort of a, a surreal edge. It's not some kind of artifact. I mean, it is, it is put there deliberately, and it's cool. It's very cool. And his stump speech is, everything will be easier and better, leisure is all right. <laughs> <laughs> Less work, yeah. more play. We cut to uh, number two's thin crowd while he's warning about empty promises. Um, and then number six is in a bar with number 58. He is playing drunk or that is yeah. the effect of the constant brainwashing. He was at the like official village watering hole with the waitress who's uh, offering him you know, whiskey, gin, and gets, gets the usual response from number six. Get out! Yep. Because she had the temerity to offer him something. How, how, yeah, how dare yeah, she? Yeah, yep, yep, yep. I guess I get it now that the reason he's acting like such a dick is that he's number six. But the reason he's acting like such a drunk dick is because the conditioning is wearing on him. By the way, I love yeah. thinking of how they accomplish that uh, light, you know, the glowing light lowering down on his head mm-hmm. with just some, you know, best boy off to the side kind of with a dimmer switch just kind of boom, 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 boom. <laughs> That was six-year-old Christopher Nolan, Glenn. Just always, <laughs> always true. just out of frame, holding, holding the. <laughs> this is this is true. Everyone, I invite anyone hearing this to fact check me. I, I have receipts. I can document this, up and down, every which way. 
So he rejects the non-alcoholic gin, whiskey, vodka, looks the same, tastes the same, and she takes him to a cave outside the village for real drinks, or real men get real drunk real quick. Uh, uh, There's a guy with a still who is making the booze, and number two is there, drunk, with a blanket over his head, as you do when you drink. Um, We all have blankets overhead. We Uh learned that this place is called the Therapy Zone, and if you want to be an alcoholic, and I think this is probably limited to the number twos, but if you want to be an alcoholic, <laughs> you can be one as long as you rejoin society the next day. So it's making a case for functional alcoholism, uh-huh. and I'm all for it. Um, then he's drugged, because apparently the test hypnosis and the glowy light in his bedroom hypnosis is not enough, and he needs an actual drinky drink to get roofied into running for elected office okay no, i didn't get that like when we get the reveal there in the therapy zone when uh number six takes a takes a swig and, and passes out and then number two and the the bartender conspire i was like what the hell is this they they already did this to him yeah yeah um but again we get the don't damage the tissue yeah uh through line and when the vote is held by throwing your little ribbon into a box seems kind of Nice and lo-fi for such a... None of that bullshit mail-in voting, Glenn. That's true. That's that's fraudulent. My favorite moment in this episode, besides the rover cult thing, is um, when number six goes out and greets the crowd. They're silent and impassive. They are absolutely still. But then we get shots of their faces, and we see that they look sincerely worried for him. That is a nice vibe Mm. there. That is a nice... They're not just impassive. There is real concern on their faces because presumably they've seen this happen to many, 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 many prisoners before. Especially, and right. there's a reason I think why the shots we get are all of older faces because they're the ones who've been in the village the longest and then they've seen this happen many, many times. Okay, I hope that's intentional. I hope that's not just like that's who was available to be extras in, in Port Marion. But, yeah. uh, but that works. I, yeah. I accept your explanation. And this is kind of foreshadowed in the prior scene when Number two reveals himself under the the blanket in the therapy zone, and uh, number six tells him he looks worried, thinking that he worries about his chances in the election. And, and number two says, "Well, believe it or not, I'm I'm worried what will happen to you." Mm-hmm. And maybe that's echoed in the faces of the the villagers. Yeah, I I just I just see everything number two is saying is a lie, and everything the villagers mm-hmm. are not saying is is more true. But that's a judgment call ultimately. Two leads six and fifty eight to the green dome. Then he departs. Uh, then fifty eight leads. Number six into number two's office, and they start pressing buttons and making calls. Yeah, they're in the Oval Office. They have they to, totally to touch everything. And number 58 expresses her delight at having access to all of these control panels with the exhortation, Boita, Boita, Boita. <laughs> Which probably means chair, 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 because <laughs> the chairs go up and down and up and down. And I up do up and down. like how, how impressed this show is with the telescoping is that the like the chairs that go up and down beneath yep. the, the floor uh sure. like the ones in uh blofeld's <laughs> committee room yeah <laughs> in thunderball there is an element of like we built this yep. and you're gonna watch it and you're gonna you're gonna like it and yeah because mostly there's just this off this office is only used with the one chair and we're gonna show you these damn chairs <laughs> he gets 58 um changes her affect uh they start pressing well, well not 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 until after we, we get some of the, the quotes that listeners to this podcast are going to hear as long as this podcast runs, Glenn, because okay. I am going to milk these like a genetically engineered super bovine. 
Okay. This is our chance. Take it now. I have command. I will immobilize all electronic controls. Listen to me. You are free to go. You are free to go. I am in command. Obey me and be free. You are free to go. You are free to go. My favorite one is Obey me and be free. He got yeah. a little Richard Burton <laughs> in there. Uh, and then he uh, escapes, theoretically, uh, into a cavern. Uh, I don't think we ever have seen this cavern that's no. right off of number two's office before. But there is straw on the floor. There's a lot of straw on the floor. Um, Where they keep the, the horses that we've never seen. <laughs> and we get, well, it's Here if it is. a James Bond lair villain lair had horses yes that's what's where it would be because it's a very brief shot of some jumpsuited goons jumpsuited means super villain lair sitting around a glowing rover junior um which is a very arresting image mm-hmm. that we never ever return to in any goddamn way it means nothing but it looks great but so haunting yeah, they uh, they're wearing sunglasses indoors. Um, well, you you can't look directly at Rover. Do what's your you'll, theory? You'll damage your eyes. I... <laughs> Do you have a theory here? Is it that that some members of uh, who are clearly like the security force in the village are oh. are is that just them hanging out with Rover, shooting the shit, or are they worshiping? As as some people have speculated, there's a worship a Rover cult. I mean, they could be warming their hands. <laughs> off of Rover. I mean, it's it looks looks cold in that cave. Sure, sure. Um, yeah. I mean, again, but they're and not. Uh, they don't appear to be speaking to one another. They just no. they, they appear to be having some kind of silent communion around the the glowy sphere. This connects the dots to the group therapy scene where people are sitting in rows and moving their feet in in unison, and the dude who is talking directly to the little tiny Rover um, in gibberish, talking directly to the tiny Rover in the fountain in front yeah. of him. Yeah. Uh, Connects. We, we we just say we say Welsh, Glenn. I, I think calling it gibberish is a little. I don't think it was Welsh. It was Welsh. It's sensitive. Oh man. No, I, it's probably not Welsh. I was. It's probably, it's no, not. It's, I think it's just. No. Uh, <laughs> but we put that all under the kind of rubric of weird shit. That's where we put all yeah. the, the yeah, stuff yeah, that yeah. that is added to the series, maybe to add texture and a sense of surrealness, um, <laughs> surreality without actually meaning yeah. a damn thing. Ultimately, after a very violent. A fight, which was not shown on uh, in Great Britain when it first aired, because it was considered too violent. Oh um, yeah, they uh, the the goons they hold number six and they they subject him to some pummeling. There's definitely some some internal organ damage happening. That was that was tough. If that tiny treacle of blood off the corner of his mouth is any indication, yeah, yeah. it's some massive internal hemorrhaging. Uh, he is taken back to fifty eight, who is now wearing. The number two ribbon, and he is taken back to her in Jesus pose because mm. it's yes. Patrick McGowan, and that's and he, he's going to McGowan. Yeah, um, and she's so stern, so disapproving, huh? so remonstrative. Now, right, w- what we skipped over was the fact that she uh, slaps the hell out of him repeatedly while saying, uh, and it seems to me that what she was doing was trying to break him out of his trance so that she could be purely vindictive and show him that he's lost and that um, she wants him to know it. Tick, tick. Tick, tick. So she slaps him around until he comes out of it and that's what causes him to 
break. Yeah. And obey me and be free. For a guy who who famously insisted to all of his acolytes, all of his employees, they were never going to cut any corners. Don't call it television. He could have committed to being slapped a little a little more. <laughs> Come on, I don't expect you to. Uh, do 100 takes skydiving over uh, Abu Dhabi or really break your ankle uh, running into a building so they can still use the shot. But um, you can you can let Rachel Herbert slap you across the face a couple there times. There is that. Come, yes, on. Of course. Come on. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I agree. It was a uh, fakey fake. And then she gets to say the villain thing, which is the first villain thing is sees him. But second villain thing, this is what she says is, Will you never learn? This is only the beginning. We have many ways and means, but we don't wish to damage you permanently. Are you ready to talk? And again, if I, I think this is probably still his first week, so yeah, I mean that's kind of it's kind of a lot to say because, like, obviously not. So here's where it stands: the village has attempted to brainwash him using a tried and true technique. Um, they tried to get him to go along, only to break him, only to show him that there is no way out. The village is beyond his control. On an allegorical level, there's all this other shit that's going on with, you know, the, we, the system will not change, uh, it tramples the individual, uh, all, all that stuff. Looking at it now, I can kind of see that there's a really pleasant congruence in the fact that, that it works on a symbolic level, but it also works on a story level. Yeah, number six seems to, I like, I don't think he's ever, ever convinced that this is a, a real opportunity for him to liberate the village. He actually says to number two, when, when uh, after number two says, uh, you know, you're, you're just the kind of candidate we need, he says, uh, might as well. Mm-hmm. He is still, again, he's, he's still in his initial mode of not going along to get along, not um, being amiable in any way, except he, he does here in the beginning. He, he allows that he will play along uh, just to see where, how it plays out. I do think, though, that in the in the actual on, on the allegorical level, there's a little some uh, chunks of ham on that fist that uh, will only get hammier and fistier as the as the series progresses. We can't judge this according to the the standard of everything that it has influenced and all that has come after. Although that is, I suppose, our our purpose. <laughs> Look, Star Trek parables in this era were were pretty on the nose pretty didactic too that's certainly true um that's part of what i i don't know that's how i i identify a lot of the things from this period that i really enjoyed yeah 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 and there is something certainly not progressive but subversive about these ideas um which you wouldn't necessarily expect if you were watching a spy show right like you like a a spy show is all about you were working on behalf of the government to protect the people when implicitly you're also working to protect the government. Uh, so espousing these ideas um, probably surprised a lot of people back back in 1967, 68. Yeah. I don't think Chimes of Big Ben is. Do we say whether we thought that was one of the essential seven? I think it is. But Okay. Well, yeah, it has to be, right? With what, what number two is saying about how it doesn't matter which side controls the village. It, that, that has to be a, a key episode next is schizoid man which is one i kind of like because it is so story driven and a lot of the allegorical stuff fades to the background and it just becomes a spy story about evil twins and who's who's uh 
<laughs> My two passions, spy stories yeah. and evil twins. I really should have looked up when The Parent Trap came out. Yeah. Because that uh, seems like a, a technical antecedent to... It will certainly inform our discussion. Schizoid Man. Yes. Do we need to start ranking our episodes, uh, either in relation to one another or, or on their own, uh, you know, a one to six? Ah, <laughs> on good. The... One to six. Uh, yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. I'd, I'd score this five out of six for me. Five out of six. No, well, I think I think this one's a six, Glenn. Mm-hmm. This is uh, like Rachel Herbert. It's a perfect six. <laughs> Sorry, in English television, you know. Yes, uh, right. <laughs> All right, yeah. Six. Also, the number of the number of British actors that in existence at any given time. La Isitzona. La Isitzona. La Isitzona. La Isitzona. <laughs> Man, she's so good. She's chilling. Yes. I don't. I don't know why. Why didn't we see her in many other things? Um, she did a lot in Great Britain. Like that's the thing. Uh, he hired yeah. a lot of folks um, who never really left those shores because there is a thriving theater and film community, yeah. or at least there was at the time. A little bit more, and she, and she probably was in a lot of movies that have titles that are like, like the in, the Invisible Vicar and you know, <laughs> <laughs> all that kind of stuff. There was one. The of, Barrister's End Papers. Yes, there's one. Of these actors was in a movie called *The Spy with a Cold Nose*, which was about an underground veterinarian. So, what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a thing. It's a thing. It's, Look it up. It's all right. The thing that really li- I really liked about Herbert is her face is so animated all of the time in uh, when she's in fifty-eight mode. She does not ever uh, just merely sit there still. Um, she's hugely expressive, and she's put up against number six, who, as we talked about, Patrick McGowan has a very kind of still affect, unless he's playing wildly drunk or just being a dick. So when all of that animation leeches from her face to reveal only that cold, impassive glare of it's actually hate that she regards yeah, him with. It right. is not merely, you know, haughtiness. It is it is a pitched disdain. Yeah. Um, and it's not hot, it's cold. It's not anger. It's right. not fury. It's it's just contempt. Yep. And I I remember back in the day when I saw this for the first time, I thought I was looking for any scrap of clue to who ran the village. And so when she says at the end, give my regard to the homeland, I thought, aha West people, us yeah. Westerners don't call it the homeland. And, and right. now now, now we do. Yeah. So, as much as I've been enjoying this project, Glenn, this this is uh, ultimately going to be a depressing exercise. <laughs> I was fearful we were gonna get a lot more Randian ramblings. I feel like that's still coming. But, I feel uh, like that's uh, still coming, especially once the show starts to lean into the allegory um, and just falls over. <laughs> <sighs> can't wait! Can't Yay. wait! All right, well, till next week when we deconstruct episode five of Schizoid Man, Glenn. Light Zona. Light Zona. How's my pronunciation? The Degree Absolute was conceived by Glenn Weldon and is produced by me, Chris Klemick. I wrote our goofy theme song, which was then arranged and beautifully performed by my dear friend Casey Aaron Clark, singing and playing keyboards, and her brother Jonathan Clark on guitar and percussion with Marcus Newstead on the bass. Check out Casey at CaseyAaronClark.com and or VitalVoiceTraining.com 
Jonathan's band Daybringer is on Bandcamp. You can find them there. Write to the Citizens Advice Bureau at a degree absolute at Gmail. You can tweet us at not a number pod. Rate, review, and subscribe to our show on Apple or Stitcher or whatever platform you use to hear it. Glenn and I are fully aware that this is a niche cast about a somewhat obscure and certainly old TV show, but if you know anyone who might be even notionally open to enjoying it, you, you might just employ the gentle art of persuasion. Or that. It's no degree partial, it's a degree absolute.